Friends, please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak through us. Spirit of the living God, speak in spite of us. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, this morning's scripture lesson can be found in the letter to the Romans, one of the Apostle Paul's letters. It's often referred to as the gospel according to Paul, his magnum opus, so to speak. We'll be reading verses 28 through 39 in chapter 8. Listen now for the word of the Lord. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you had to study Socrates in college. You read about him maybe in Plato's dialogues. Maybe you're only familiar with Socrates because of one Steve Martin comedy sketch where he, of course, calls him Socrates. So whether you know him as Socrates or Socrates, he is considered and credited with being the founder of Western philosophy, one of the first thinkers in moral philosophy and ethics. We know about him mostly through Plato and other philosophers who wrote about his dialogues. And he had such an impact that even to this day, we take what is what we call the Socratic method and we study it in law schools. 
Socratic dialogues lead us in philosophy class to try to get closer to truth. You see, for Socrates, words mattered, and he was debating sophists, where we get that word sophisticated from. See, sophists were using flowery language to deceive, to make their point, to make their opponent look foolish and unlearned. So they'd use these fancy words and terms to make it seem as if they had in fact won the argument and they gained popularity. But for Socrates, this was to be above all else despised because flattery and flowery language doesn't get you to truth. You have to get as close to truth as you possibly can. So Socrates in his dialogues asks many questions. He points out contradictions. He's not interested in gotcha moments to score political points like you might see in campaigns today. He is truly interested in getting to the heart of the matter because words matter. In fact, we are surrounded by words and language. Even our very own existence is a language in code. We call it DNA. Written into our very existence is the language of the universe. And dare I say, as a preacher, the language of God. And in this language, we have been put in us a desire to seek truth to seek the good, to seek beauty, to seek God. The text this morning is also about words, the power of words. See, Paul was recognized as being quite the speaker and writer. Like Socrates, he is a foundation of sorts, certainly for our faith. His rhetoric, his language, though it might seem flowery to us and accused perhaps as being sophist, Paul is trying to get as close to truth as he can. Some scholars see this as the last of Paul's undisputed letters, although there are scholars who think otherwise. But among their reasons is the maturity of the letter as I mentioned, sometimes called the gospel according to Paul. This is Paul's ultimate thesis where he puts it all together. His views on faith, his about forgiveness, his his following the law and falling into sin, fostering hope and the gift of grace and God's love. This text also includes some of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. Why? Because it tells us about a God who is for us and not against us. It reminds us that life in Jesus Christ isn't about condemnation. We are free of our own self-righteousness and false belief that we have to have it all put together or that we're better than others, whether they be friends or foes. We are told that we are brothers and sisters of Christ by the spirit of adoption so we too can cry out to the one whom Jesus called Abba, Father. We are also told about the ways in which we groan along with all creation, not only because of the suffering in this world, which Paul tells us doesn't compare to the glory to come, but we groan in hope for something new, the birthing of a new age in Christ, 
where there will be enough for everyone, where there will finally be justice, where we will be surrounded by our loved ones and no longer fear for their loss, where there will be no more sighs and no more tears and no more sorrow. For Paul, this is the summary of truths he has come to experience and to believe and to live into. And so that is why Pauline scholars believe this is likely an older Paul, just a couple of years away from what tradition said, has said is the execution of Paul by the state. By this point, Paul has certainly stirred up controversy, not only in the Roman Empire, of course, but among Jews and the early followers of Jesus who would later be called Christians. He has been threatened, beaten, persecuted, and arrested. We are even told in the letters that Paul will sometimes dictate portions of them, if not all of them, and scholars believe this points to the far-reaching and damaging injuries Paul has sustained that he can no longer write with his own hand. So despite our usual experience of Paul as too academic and hard to follow and understand, Paul is not waxing poetic or philosophical with lofty verses for the academy when he asks this question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or peril or famine or nakedness? These are all things Paul himself has experienced Paul's companions have experienced them, and not for the last time. The final paragraph we usually translate starting with, for I am convinced. Now, words matter. And that word convinced is a Greek word which can also be translated as persuaded. What I love about persuaded is that In our time, the way we use that word convinced can sometimes mean that we are so certain of something. And it can seem so individual, like we've looked at the facts and we've come to our own conclusion and we've been convinced. But I love the nuance of persuasion for our own reflection today. You see, that word convince makes Paul seem like he has scientific exactitude or academic stubbornness, but persuaded tells me that Paul, just like the rest of us, also struggles with doubt, especially in the face of hardship. In other words, Paul has the need to be persuaded. He doesn't come to it on his own with his own reasoning and looking at the facts and the evidence. No, He must, in the face of struggles, in the face of loss and meaning and death, he must be persuaded by someone, by something, to write a true sentence, the truest sentence he can write, a truth too deep for words that he must go on and on with such powerful rhetoric in Romans, using moving imagery. He must even get cosmic with talk of angels and all creation and things to come. Paul, the author, is writing the truest sentence he can write. There's another author I'd like to talk to you about today. 
Ernest Hemingway, some of you may know, is one of my favorite authors since I first read him freshman year of high school. It led me on a journey to visit as many of the Hemingway haunts as possible, like Madrid and Oak Park and Chicago and Key West, and someday I hope to visit Walloon Lake. For those of you familiar with Hemingway, you might know that he is most famous for his cynical writing, his search for identity found throughout his works as he pens short stories that deal with outdoor activities like hunting and fishing, but also the tragedy and the existential angst of war. You might have heard some of his books or read them like A Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man in the Sea. Now, you see, Hemingway, like the Apostle Paul, has also encountered many hardships, and he writes from a place of deep pain and injury. He has a troubled relationship with his mother, with women in his life. He marries four times. He has a troubled relationship with his children, we discover in his letters. He reflects on the pain and absurdity of war as well as the struggle for identity. He is injured in war and because of hunts and because of a plane crash. Finally, when he is so broken and unable to write, he ends his life as his father did at the point of a gun. One of his books titled A Movable Feast was published three years after his tragic death. It's a memoir and likely the last of any complete drafts he had intended to publish, and it still needed some editing. He was working off notes in 1956 that he had taken in Paris as a young man in the Roaring Twenties. It's a wonderful book that features characters such as F. Scott Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound, and James Joyce, among others, and described by scholars as the lost generation. It talks about writing and the dynamics of English language writers in Paris, the importance of words. In one section, he's reflecting on his own struggle to write, and he, says, he writes this, all you have to do is write one true sentence I would say to myself, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. It was easy then because there was always one true sentence that I knew or had seen or had heard someone say. Write the truest sentence you know. That sounds like something to live by. Sadly, in this very paragraph, Hemingway seems to suggest that it was no longer coming easy to him. It was easy then, he writes. Something confirmed by people who spent their last years with him and in his letters. He was losing his ability to write or perhaps his appetite for it. Or maybe he had lost any truth to write about. In his search for identity, the author who belonged to the lost generation had himself become lost. Perhaps in his own celebrity, but certainly in his own depression and alcoholism. He had lost his grasp of what was true in his life. He even questioned his existence. By contrast, this other author, the Apostle Paul, who also faced a great hardship, 
is writing the truest sentence that he knows, likely just four years before his death. And I don't think it's because Paul doesn't see what Hemingway sees. Hemingway describes as reality this, the world breaks everyone and afterward many are strong at the broken places, but those that will not break, it kills. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you are none of these, you can be sure it will kill you too, but there will be no special hurry. It's not that Paul doesn't see the brokenness of the world. It's not that Paul's life isn't full of suffering and sorrow, which feature prominently in his writings and in the book of Acts. The difference is for Hemingway, some figure out the cruelty of the world's reality and then they die. But for Paul, he just doesn't see this as the end of the story that God is writing. Hemingway was looking for his truest sentence, but Paul was writing his. For I am persuaded to the point of being convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God By whom is Paul persuaded? By the God who is for us and not against us. Who in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to God's very own self. By this God whose love is steadfast, whose pursuit of God's people is relentless, whose covenant to be God with us and not God without us endures for all time whose mercies are new every morning. This God is the one persuading Paul. And how? God doesn't speak to me, you say. How can I be persuaded? God has spoken in language and words that transcend time and culture and lands long ago through the beauty of creation for the heavens declare the glory of God through the law of Moses and the prophets and in the fullness of time through the word made flesh in Jesus Christ the language written into our very own lives and world God has spoken and still speaks through the word that we read today that bears witness to the living word illumined by the Holy Spirit, God still speaks today through thanksgiving gatherings with family to offer support. God still speaks today through the visiting of the sick and the imprisoned and the adopting of a child in need. God still speaks today through the feeding of the hungry with sandwiches. God still speaks today. You see, faith isn't about having it all figured out. It's about being open to God's persuasion and the word that God is speaking then and now. It happens over your lifetime in the midst of sorrow and joy. God at work to persuade you of God's unconditional love for you. Yes, even at the hospital bedside. Yes, even when you've lost someone you love. Yes, even when the criticism hurts. God is at work persuading you. 
You see, we can be ashamed and try to hide our greatest guilt and our storied past from God, convinced that we couldn't possibly be forgiven for everything, convinced that we are in fact bad at the end of it all. But I invite you to be persuaded by God, persuaded that you can be forgiven, persuaded that you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. And in my heart, this will be the truest sentence, the truest sentence of all, and I pray it will be in your hearts as well. For I am persuaded, friends, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our King. And that, my friends, is the truest sentence to live by. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.